The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's open our Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Our text today is verses 9 through 13, as we continue to examine uh, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian church. And his prayer comes at the end of the first section of the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is at the end of chapter 3. And this is after he spoke about his concern for the faith of these people and how they would grow in the faith. And he speaks in these first three chapters of faith, love, and hope. And we will refer to those often as we go through because each of the chapters in 1 Thessalonians has those three, uh, th- those three things as the basis for them, faith, love, and hope. And in this prayer, Paul breaks down those three. Uh, these are vital concepts. And if the church knows these things and does these things, they will be well-grounded They will be sanctified as they wait for the Lord to come. And then this first section, chapters 1 through 3, is also an examination of Paul's pastoral heart. It's his love for the church. It's his desire to see them once again. There's also a defense of his care for the church when it's obvious that there are those who said that Paul didn't care. He refutes charges of hypocrisy by saying that he spoke to them only what God told him to speak, that he spoke to them the gospel of God, that it was genuine because it is God's gospel. He said his speech was not flattering, his doctrine was not deceitful, his motives weren't selfish, but all that he did was give them the truth, and his satisfaction in all that he went through was to know this, that they are believers, that they are on their way to heaven, and they are saved from the wrath that will come upon this wicked world. I believe the verse that anchors the first three chapters is verse 13 in chapter 2. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And that attitude towards the Word of God settles the truth in the mind. That's what presses the, the Word into the mind as it penetrates the soul being the source of our spiritual life. And here's the big question. Did you hear the Word of God and did you receive it as God's Word? Or did you hear it and believe this is simply the Word of men? And how you answer that question is determinative of your, of your eternal life, of your salvation. Because the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's the only revelation that we have. And so if you don't accept the Word of God as being the Word of God, then you have no revelation of Jesus Christ. So you must believe it. So when Paul said that they had received God's gospel not as the Word of man, but as the Word of God, that was the same as saying, I know that you're right. I know that your faith is real. I know that you are believers. And I know that you will continue to grow by the Word. You will be sanctified if you stay in the Word. And then just before verse 13, in the 12th verse, he said, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you 
unto his kingdom and glory. You will walk worthy of God's kingdom if you stay in the word. And I can't emphasize that point enough. That we are a ministry of the word. We preach the word because it is the word only that will make us worthy of Christ. And only by the word will we look like Christ. Now if you'll open your Bibles to our text, I want to begin in verse number 7 rather than verse 9. And here we find Paul's heart as he begins the prayer, far from uh, taking anything from them as false teachers did, he said that his life was fulfilled only if they were standing fast in the Lord. Verse number 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith, now there he is referring to the report that he received from Timothy, the good report of their faith. And he says, For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints." Now, in the last message, I explained that these last verses of the chapter are a prayer. They're not the normal way of praying, because most of the time when we pray, we direct our prayers directly to God. But that's not what Paul does here. Instead, he speaks to the people. And as he speaks to them, the prayer goes up to God. He's not speaking directly to God, but he is stating what he desires that God would do for this church. Now, although that isn't the most common way to pray, it's not an uncommon way, as he speaks to them, his heart goes up to God, and so we can say that his heart was in an attitude of prayer. Now, the Scripture does say that we are to pray without ceasing. In fact, right in this letter, in chapter 5, verse number 7, Paul said that very thing, pray without ceasing. But we know it's, it's hard to do if what he meant by that is... When we pray that we're always to get down on our knees, that we're always to clasp our hands together and look up to heaven and pray in that way. But we can't, though we can't always do it that way, we can always be in an attitude of prayer. That the things that we think, the things that we do, and what we could write or how we can work, all that can be done with God on our minds. And that's what Paul does as he writes this letter. God is on his mind as he expresses his desires for this church. Last week we began to break down the prayer following three lines of thought that are found in chapter 1 and verse number 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Faith, love, and hope, those are the critical issues for the church. They are the sum of Christianity. Faith in God, love for God and for your fellow man, and the hope of eternal life in heaven. So Paul's prayer is that, that 
the people would, would have this faith, love, and hope. They would have all three of these aspects of their relationship with God. And if the church is careful to develop those areas, it will be a strong church, it will endure the hardships that are experienced by being in the faith, and we will be here holding out until Christ returns. Well, in verse number 10, there is the first petition of the prayer. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. The first petition is the apostles' desire to supply knowledge to their faith, that is, to perfect their faith, that is, complete those areas where they're lacking. Now, we stated the petition negatively in the last message, that his desire was to decrease their deficiencies, the deficiencies in their faith. And let me just say, there are always deficiencies in our faith. We don't have a perfect faith. We can't have a perfect faith because we're still in this life. We still have the old sinful nature in us. And so as long as we live, our faith is always going to aspire to be greater or should. It, can, it needs to grow. It needs to become more what God wants it to be. The best among us has not progressed all that we need to progress in our faith. Even the Apostle Paul said, I've not attained. I don't have complete knowledge that I want to have of everything that God has for me. Uh, Romans chapter 7 is Paul's proof that he wasn't everything that he wanted to be. That he struggled to stay on top. He said, the things that I know that I should do, I don't do. And the things in my life that I try to prevent that I shouldn't do, I don't always prevent those. But he prayed and he struggled to keep his faith pure. In Philippians, he wrote that he had no claim of perfection. He said, I have not attained the full completion of my desire to be like Christ. So we know we can't be perfect in this life, but we also know that a Christian is never to stop trying. Every day, every single day, God expects us to keep trying to be more like Christ. We're expected to grow to be like Jesus. And we increase our faith when we immerse ourselves in the study of God's Word. That's how we grow in our sanctification. It's how we increase our Christ-likeness. We do that as we more, learn more about Christ in the Scriptures. So Paul tells us that there's none of us that knows enough. We haven't learned enough. Neither have we attained. But our faith will increase. If we apply the Word, and with the application of the Word comes more ability to resist temptation. Our faith will increase. It will rule our lives if we're diligent to pay attention, to give ourselves to the study of God's Word. Now, you hear me say this over and over, and, and can I say it too much? Is it possible for me to say that too much, to emphasize too much that the power to live for Christ is found only in God's Word? We are to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And a few weeks ago I said, uh, we can tell which believers don't, don't pay attention to the Word. We can tell when they haven't bathed themselves in the cleansing Word of God. How do we tell? Well, we see that they don't want to work for Christ. They, they don't want to bother with serving. They don't want to attend services. They don't want to listen. But they do like to complain. They're discontent. And the discontentment shows on their faces and in their attitude. They continue to live and act like the world, and those are sure signs of deficient faith. Now we'll see later in chapter 4 that this was the problem in Thessalonica. 
Their faith wasn't well developed. It, it wasn't sufficiently developed because it hadn't, it hadn't led them out of their immoral pagan lifestyles. They were saved, but faith didn't rule every area of their lives. And Paul knew that would eventually lead to failure in their faith. It would be fatal to their faith and fatal to their, to their growth. So either faith is going to rule your life or Satan will. Same was evident in Corinth. Remember, he wrote this letter from Corinth, and that's what he experienced with them. They had a, a very difficult time living for the Lord, going back into their, to the old ways that they used to live. And I'll say this to you as members of Berean Baptist Church, that if you choose to live a worldly lifestyle, that it will corrupt your faith. It will ruin your testimony, and also it will ruin the testimony of this church. How are we going to save a corrupt world if we're also corrupt? We can't. It's not going to happen. You know, I love Bereans like, like Paul loved the Thessalonians. We, we certainly have a great group of people in our church. And I know that there's some of you that are growing. You're growing in the Word. I know some of you put forth that strong effort to push out all the deficiencies of your faith. But we're still faced with a problem that we have membership of our church that doesn't do it. Some will give little effort. Some have shrinking faith and not growing faith. Some used to work in the church, but they don't anymore. Some have given into a lesser spiritual mentality. They've let other things take the place of church. And so we can't count on them being in the place of service. I don't see that that's Paul's desire for the church. He wanted them to press on just as he pressed for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul never offered an excuse for the assembly of the church. There isn't any. There is no place like the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no Christian who is strong and growing in the faith without the church. Now he said, I've left all the other things behind. We just read that in Philippians chapter 3 uh, in the... In the uh, uh, Worship assemblies, we began the, the call to worship. We read this, that everything that the world offers, all the allurements, the self-satisfaction, all the fleshly attainments, he said, I put all of those behind me that I might win Christ. And I'll just have to ask you, are your choices in the will of God or are they against the will of God? Are you working for Christ or are you falling away from Him? Even right now, the decision that you'll make about what you're going to do next weekend, will that bring Christ near to you, or will it drive Him further away? Now, we need some honest soul-searching. We need less excuses. Neither Christ nor the apostles left room for excuses. So here is Paul's first petition. He prayed that he might see them again for this purpose, to perfect their faith. It's to get them on track so that every day, every choice, every thought has God on their minds. He desired to see them, to speak to them face to face, that he might work on these very things, perfecting their faith. Well, he learns from Timothy's report, their faith did have a solid foundation. They, the foundation was there. They received the truth. They trusted the word. And with that foundation, there's something to build on. The chief cornerstone of their faith was Jesus Christ. It always is. And if you have that foundation, there is something that can be built on. It's on that foundation of Jesus Christ that a, that a, a, a marvelous, beautiful temple can be built to the Lord God. Well, we want to ask a couple, of, couple or three questions here this morning about your faith. 
uh, as, we, as we sum up this point, how do you know your faith is growing? Just some simple questions. How do you know your faith is growing? And I shouldn't really even need to ask this first one again, but I will. The first question is, do you know more of God's Word now than you did before? Are you gaining knowledge of the Word, or is your learning stagnant? Spiritual growth is always tied to increasing knowledge of the Word. Question number two, do you obey better now than before? Do your choices agree with God's will, or are they against God's will? And let me say that you won't be able to determine that without the Word, because 99% of God's will is found in His Word. You must know God's Word to know God's will. A few weeks ago, uh, Brother Dalton said that uh, someone at work asked him a question. The, the person began the question, Is it wrong to? And before the rest of the question could be asked, Dalton said, Well, if you have to ask, it probably is. And isn't that true? Uh, how often does the conscience convict by just putting it in our minds to question what we do? The sanctified conscience of a Christian is that first speed bump that tells you you better stop and you better think about what you're getting ready to do. The conscience will convict you whenever you start to do something wrong. It's there. And the question is, are you going to go ahead and do it? When the Holy Spirit raises that red flag and says, don't go there, your sanctification, your growth is determined by the next action. Question number three. Is your confidence in God? Is your confidence in God? Do you trust God that whatever He tells you to do is right? When you can't see out there into the future, and none of us can, and you can't see the end of a tough decision, you don't know how it's going to work out, do you trust that God is always right, that if you go His way, that it will always be best for you? That's always a problem, isn't it? Because we don't always think that God knows the best way. We know more and more than God. But you haven't grown until you can follow where God leads and you can't see where you're going. Folks, that's faith. That is full confidence in God. So here are three ways that will challenge you to determine how much you've grown to be like Christ. And, and you need to, uh, to think about that last one for just a minute. Think about the confidence that, that Jesus had in the Heavenly Father. What is it the Father told him to do? He said, if you will go, and if you will give your life on the cross, if you will die there, then I will raise you from the dead. Is that confidence? To do what God said, I will raise you from the dead, if you will do this. Now, to those three questions... We can add the next prong of the triumvirate of the Christian religion. Next, according to chapter 1, verse number 3, is love. In our text, Paul said, It's my prayer to God that you would abound in love to all. What is Christianity without love? And who is a Christian who hasn't learned to love as Christ's love? So Paul's second petition is his desire for their love. He says in verse 12, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. You see that he asks that their love would increase and abound. Increase. Isn't that growth? Now a believer, a born-again believer, is, is a person who's had the seed of love implanted in him. You can't be a Christian without love. 
1 John 4, 16 says, And we have known and believed that, uh, believe the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. In verse 12, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. No man hath seen God at any time. The, the obvious implication here is John is telling us how we can see God. And how will we see God? Well, we can only see Him in the love that His people have towards each other. When His love is perfected in us. Like faith is perfected, so love is perfected. It increases in the Christian life. We grow in Christ. That seed of love begins to grow and it blossoms into the sweet fragrance of all Christian graces that rule our lives. Now, there's much more that we can get on love from 1 John. Uh, there's a full exposition of the meaning of love to the Christian. But we can't go into all of that today, and Paul doesn't expand on that doctrine here. He just says, I want to come and see you so I can work on this issue. So not only your faith will increase, but your love will increase and abound also. Now abound, that's a great descriptive word that he uses. It means to excel in love, to be superlative, to overflow with love. So how is it that you will be like God, and how will we see God well, it's when His love overflows in our lives. And isn't that what God did in the creation of the world? How would God make His love known, this attribute of love that He has, unless it should overflow into the creation of this world? John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. Jesus intended that to be an incomparable comparison. Is that a paradox, an incomparable comparison? God so loved the world, and he means it was beyond. It was beyond anything that you can think. It's beyond anything that you could ever imagine. It's above all that we've seen. He so loved the world that God would give his only son to die for sinners. Now, there's so many scriptures to use as references for this, but, but there's none that has the simplicity of John 3.16. God so loved the world. And that is a superabounding love. It filled the world and it overflowed. And Paul said that is the kind of love that you need to have. God is love. And so how will you be like God? Is that a very hard question? No, because it's all explained to us right here. You will be like God. How to be like God is self-evident. You must learn to love and abound in love to be like God. Now when you're saved, you get some of that love. There is a newfound, conscious, deliberate love that's put into you. Love is not a choice that you make. Later we'll get to discuss more about love in another part of, of 1 Thessalonians. But we, we need to understand this, that when the Bible speaks of love, it's not talking about infatuation. Not speaking of people that fall in and out of love all of the time. Love in the Bible is not that kind of love. That's not even a love that registers on the scale of God. This love is deliberate. This is something that you choose to do. It doesn't fade in and out accidentally. And God puts it in you to have that ability to choose to love. God teaches this. He's the one that told us this. In Romans, Paul said, the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts. He said that when the Holy Spirit came into you, that love came in with him. He's the one that teaches you how to love. So there, there, there can't be a Christian who doesn't love. 
When you were justified, you were also sanctified and set apart to God. You were turned around to go in a different direction. You began to pursue your sanctification. And you obeyed as Christ obeyed. And as your faith grows, so does your understanding of love. And when you see that love grow, your selfish love diminishes. Your love of self diminishes. It's to give up self. It's to put others above self. And that's the very model that Christ gave us. He stepped down to our level to be made like us and to die for sinners. He gave up self for sinners. And that's what the Holy Spirit teaches us to do. Now let me take you back to the first petition for just a moment. The second and third parts of this prayer hang on that first petition. That the more you grow in faith, the more that you broaden your comprehension of faith and of the truth, the more that you'll learn to grow in Christ and love as Christ loves. Love increases, self decreases through the knowledge of the Word. So that person that I talked about last week who says, I'm okay, I'm fine right where I am, I know all that I need to know, I'm saved And there's no point to me going any further. I don't need to know more than that. That it's a person who has rejected love. You understand? Because with knowledge comes love. And I think Paul would say there isn't anybody who has enough love. Why else would he pray their love would increase? So if you've stopped growing, if you stop progressing in your knowledge of the word, then you stopped increasing your love. Is that hard for us to understand? Oh, the guy says, well, let's, let's stop talking about doctrine. Let's focus only on evangelism. And his church preaches only evangelism. Then he'll never develop the love that will, that will help him in his evangelism. They can't love like Christ loved because they stop short of learning about him. So as knowledge of the faith grows, so love grows. In Philippians 2, Paul described it as the mind of Christ. It's the end of self as you begin to focus on the needs of others. In Galatians 6.12, he wrote, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Interesting statement. So fulfill the law of Christ. There are some who say that there isn't a law for Christians. There's only grace for Christians. Have you heard about the grace preachers? This is all they preach. They preach God's grace, and they say that you can ignore the law. In fact, this is a a theology that's pervasive in evangelicalism today. There's a new antinomianism that has arisen that's spread throughout the evangelical world. And antinomianism simply means that we can live as we please without consequence because the law does not constrain us. The law doesn't have any effect on us. But I beg to disagree with that, and so does Paul. He says that God's law and God's grace are not contrary, they are complementary. Paul taught grace. In Galatians 6, 2, he said we are to fulfill the law of Christ. And so what is that law? What law does he mean? Well, there isn't any law in the Scriptures except the law that's found in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there's corrected interpretations of the law, but there aren't any new laws. No, the law of Christ comes straight from the Old Testament. You know it. We've studied it. Last year, when we went through the Ten Commandments, we showed that the law is fulfilled in love. That these are the two great divisions of the, of the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your fellow man, so it should be evident that obeying the law is a chief component of love. And Jesus said that. 
How can you love me if you don't do the things that I say? John said, how can you love God if you don't keep his commandments? And to that he added, you are a liar if you say that you love God and you don't obey him. So you see, we just kind of keep mulling this thing over and over. And with every spin of the wheel, we, we land at the very same spot. How much you know determines how much you love God and each other. And I, and I have to ask this question, and, and maybe you thought that, that, I, that I would or I should. Has learning the doctrines of grace caused you to appreciate God more? Do you appreciate more how much God loves you? Do you have more confidence in God now that you know those things, that you know that God controls everything and that He loves you? Do you hunger and thirst to know more of the Word because now you know those doctrines? Oh, it's a wonderful thing to know that God loves us and is in control of everything that happens to us. Now, some will tell you that John 3.16 is death to the doctrines of grace. But how could that be? Because John 3.16 says that God loves the world. And that means that He loves all sorts of people. He doesn't exclude anybody by race or color or people groups or nationalities or economic success or any such thing. God loves people, all sorts of people. And these Thessalonians that Paul speaks to, they're filled with their prejudices. The Jews struggled with prejudice. Both Jews and Gentiles were prejudiced against each other. The resistance of the Jews to see the gospel preached to the Gentiles was because of their prejudice. That's a mighty barrier to the spread of the gospel. But the gospel of Christ and the love that it teaches leaps that barrier of the prejudices between us. Love ends prejudice. The, the servant passages about Christ in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 42, said the Messiah will be a light to the Gentiles. And isn't it wonderful that we can look at the church today and we see there isn't Jew or Greek. And we see there's neither bond nor free. There's neither male or female. It says we're all one in Christ Jesus. And we see in this text that Paul said your love must abound to one another, and not just to one another, but he says to all men. That we are to love the world. The church is to be a diversified church that's made up of all people groups. But diversity doesn't mean diverse lifestyles. It doesn't mean that we accept people no matter how they choose to live. No, they must choose to live according to the law of Christ that's found in the commandments. There's only one lifestyle for Christians. The scripture says it is Christ in you. And when Christ is in you, it's never going to be contrary to the revealed, written Word of God. We're saved, and we're born into the family of God, and we are all alike with one lifestyle, because we're all in Christ. For ye are all one in Christ. That's Galatians 3.28. But people hear us preach these things, and they say, No, what you really mean is that you just want people to conform to your opinions. But I don't have any opinions on how people should live except what I find in God's Word. And I hope that you found our ministry to be one that always returns to the Word of God to get the answers. All the answers are in His Word. We don't hold any beliefs that are binding on any person except they are found in the Word of God. And then when they're found in the Word of God, those are the things that we stick to. We claim those things, we live by them, and we're not going to live any other way. 
And why won't we? Because that's what it means to love God. It's to obey Him. And so when we hold people accountable to God's Word, that's when we love God. And that's when we love them. Tell them to obey the commandments. Well, Paul prayed their love would abound. He didn't want anyone to conform to anything or anyone but Christ. He said you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if that doesn't look like Christ, then it didn't come from Christ. And it won't fit his church. Now he wanted their cup to overflow with love. He wanted them filled to the brim and over overflowing. Love the people that you fellowship within the church. You should. But also love those that are outside of the church. Those who need the gospel of Christ. So those are two petitions. Two prongs of the triumvirate. There is faith and there is love. Then finally, he speaks of hope. Number three is a heart of holiness in hope. Verse 13, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Uh, you don't see the word hope in that verse, but hope is in the verse. We see it in the promise of the coming of Christ. Here the apostle says, At the coming of of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is the hope that Christ will take us home to be with him. Now in chapter 1 verse 3, it's called the patience of hope. That's the endurance of hope. In verse number 10, it's spoken of as being delivered from the wrath to come. Each of the chapters in 1 Thessalonians has this element of hope attached to it. The hope that Christ will return. And why is that so important for us? Because a steadfast hope of Christ's return will make you a better Christian. It will make you a holy Christian. The principle is stated several ways in the scriptures. 1 John 2, 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. First John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Second Peter three thirteen fourteen. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Now, those scriptures teach that Christ will return, and when he returns, he expects to find holy people. And if you have hope of his return... You will purify yourself as Christ is pure. If you believe that he could come at any moment, then you'll make sure that you're prepared. Holiness is, is identical to sanctification. Now, this text does not deal with positional sanctification. This is progressive sanctification. It's the sanctification that we grow in every day. We grow to sin less and less 
and to serve more and more. Paul doesn't pray here for personal or rather positional sanctification. That happened immediately and subsequently to your justification. You believed and you were justified. Then immediately you were sanctified, set apart to God. You don't need to pray for that. That's been done. But you do need to pray as you grow through life that you will grow up to be like Christ. The sanctification is experiential. and It has as its goal that you will reach the judgment seat of Christ and you will be rewarded for all those things that flow out of your life that look like Jesus Christ. Out of your life float all the works of Christ. And you'll do that only as you immerse yourself in the comprehensive faith that permeates every action of life. And where is that faith learned? In the Word of God. Holiness happens when you put your faith into action. You must practice faith. And you won't practice what you don't know. Is your initial faith in Christ? Well, that's good. But you can't put that into practice. You must put into practice this subsequent knowledge that's being taught to you by the Holy Spirit. So the reminder in the text is that Christ is coming. There's an old song that came out of the parable of the ten virgins that says, Will your lamps be trimmed and burning should the bridegroom come tonight? The question is, are you ready? Are you prepared for the Lord to come? Has your hope caused you to live a different life? And that's all it can mean. That's all it means to be ready for Christ. Like the song I sang just a moment ago, the role is called up yonder. It's to think on Christ, to do Christ's work from morning until evening. It's to live for Christ, and that's all that you can do to be prepared. So if you're growing in your faith, you're living in the hope of Christ's return. John said we are to live in holiness, to have confidence that when Christ does return, that we won't be ashamed. Our anticipation is that our faith will not fall short of its expectation. And then finally, I want you to see that Paul prayed he would see them in heaven in that final, blameless, perfect state where they'll, where they'll be forever with Christ. There all the saints of God are in perfection. There all of us are complete. All believers have attained. And the struggle is over. We've reached our full sanctification forever. Folks, that's what we call the doctrine of glorification. We shall be like Christ. We shall be like Him when we see Him as He is. Our hope ends in the sight of the throne of God. That's when we see Christ face to face. Now we notice when it happens according to the text, it's at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. All those Christians that died in Christ will return and all will be received up into glory. That's the blessed hope. Now I'd say this is a great prayer. It doesn't appear as a common prayer. It's addressed to God through the Thessalonians. And it's Paul's desire. And it's a good pastor's desire for those he's privileged to teach. Their faith, their love, and their hope. And that's what I want for you. To grow in faith, love, and hope. Because those are the three great principles of the Christian faith. To God be the glory, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for these principles of Christianity, faith, love, and hope. And we pray, Lord, that they might be present in our lives, that we would live as you would have us to live.
that we would love as you would have us to love, and that we would hope as you would have us to hope, keeping our eyes always on the coming of Jesus Christ in the way that we practice our faith every day. And as we grow in your word, our faith, love, and hope also grow. Lord, bless your people today. Strengthen them. Uh, Help us, Lord, in the many trials and complications of life that we go through. We, We trust that everything is in your hands, and we know, Lord, you will bring us through. We thank you for that. We pray for anyone here today who might not know you as Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would... Your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the truth of what they must believe, that they must accept the gospel as the word of God that will save them. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.